0: Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, today we continue our walk through the book of beginnings, Genesis. We're in chapter 2. Let's get started. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. How wonderful to know that God is faithful to finish His work. Just as He was determined and faithful to complete His new creation, He is absolutely trustworthy regarding every life that has been turned over to Him. You know, our lives were, or if you're not saved, are tohu bohu, which means empty and meaningless, void and vain, as we saw in chapter 1 of Genesis. But as we choose to surrender our will to His, we are ourselves, recreated, transformed, and filled with new life. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ, as Philippians chapter one. And to the Corinthian believers he wrote, Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That's Second Corinthians five. This is so splendid because the faithfulness of God is as absolute as his goodness. And this is in stark contrast to the entire history of mankind. You see, my tendency, along with most of you, is to kind of flake out, to take the easy route and give up when the task seems too demanding. Now, as I grow in the Lord, becoming more and more aware of my own wretchedness apart from Him, I am increasingly amazed that he doesn't give up on me. And I'm thrilled that he is committed to completing the task of my recreation. Well, Genesis goes on. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, it's important to note this principle of Shabbat. God is not bound by anything, yet he chose to take a day of rest as an example. Note that in all of his creation, there are only two things which God blessed. Those are man and the Sabbath. Now, man's blessing involved fruitfulness and dominion over all living things. The Sabbath's blessing involved rest. Now, you may ask, why would God rest? He can't get tired. That's right, he's omnipotent. Certainly, being an example to man was one possible reason. But why didn't the Lord simply command man here to take a day off as he commanded him not to eat of the fruit of the tree later? let me suggest that he made himself a visual aid because of the Sabbath's importance relevant to the central figure in all Scripture, Jesus Christ. The rest was a foreshadowing of two things. First, the reign of Christ in the heart of every true believer and of his millennial reign on earth. Now, that former rest concerns our ceasing from our own works, halting from our desperate attempts to earn salvation or to merit God's blessing. As we read in chapter 1, all that God made was very good. It was a paradise. After it was created, He placed man in it and simply told him to tend it, in other words, man never had to earn or merit this paradise. He never had to work for it. He simply worked in it. And the same is true concerning our salvation. It's grace, an unearned, unmerited gift from God. We don't work for it either. We just work in it. That is, we respond to the love and the goodness of God with our own labors. Now, many religious systems embrace the doctrine of Sabbath, but they generally make it a ritualistic observance and miss the whole point behind it. That is, resting in God's salvation, his goodness. Well, Genesis goes on. This is the history, or literally generations, of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Actually, I think verse 3 of chapter 2 should be the last verse of chapter 1. Here the Lord begins a recap with a different angle, so to speak, one that focuses in on man, the Garden of Eden, and the manifested heart of God. Now, He wanted man to know the joy and intimacy and fellowship with Him. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Before man came on the seed, before the plants The atmosphere of the earth was moist and misty. There was no rain, just a gentle mist that watered the whole earth. Now, this is fascinating from an agricultural and scientific view, but more importantly, it pictures the pervasive presence of the Lord. Throughout Scripture, the coming of God's word to earth is pictured as watering it. In Isaiah 55, we read, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Not only was the earth watered, But the soul of man was to be blessed by a wonderful intimacy with his Creator, and one day soon it will be like that again. Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall each man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Hmm. The whole earth shall be filled with the intimate, heartwarming knowledge of the Lord." Genesis goes on. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. You know, you're pretty disgusting. Yes, that's right, you. (laughs) And me too. We can be so dusty. That is carnal and earthy. How thankful I am that God knows that. The scripture says in Psalms 103, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Now, that really freezes up in a sense. Oh, not to go and, let's say, flesh out sin, and so to speak, but rather give our brothers and sisters space to love them in spite of their earthiness. God loves us despite our dust composition And as a consequence, we don't have to go around sin-sniffing and getting all uptight about others' dustiness. Now, when the devil tells me, you are so earthy and sinful, I can reply, well, you don't know the half of it. I'm more sinful than you can imagine. But that just amplifies God's graciousness. He knows my dustiness, and still, he loves me and died to cleanse me from all of it. And I've got an eternal, loving relationship with him because of that. Genesis goes on. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I love this because it exemplifies our father's heart. Again, Adam is resting. He's not on some quest or tracking down his destiny, yet God places him in paradise. How can we doubt the goodness of God? There's no union contract here or binding arbitration on him. It was his desire and his idea to make this perfect place and then to plop Adam down in the midst of it. I'm convinced that if we'll follow him, God continues to put us in the place that's perfect for us. Now, you might say, well, that's not my experience. I've tried to follow God's leadings, and look where I am. It's not a paradise. It's a den of vice. Or maybe, if you knew my situation and how much I've tried to follow the Lord, or if you knew my wife or my husband or my boss, or well, if you've turned left and you knew God said, go right, and you find yourself in a precarious position, then you can know God did not place you there. But you could also know that wherever you are, you can still turn to him and find yourself back on track. You know, Jonah the prophet, he was such a man. God told him, go right and speak a warning message to the people of Nineveh. But Jonah headed left to Joppa, just as fast as he could. There he hitched a ride to the furthest part of the earth he knew about. It wasn't just left, but left field. In fact, it was the left field bleachers. Oh, but God is faithful with his children. You may remember the story. Jonah went down to Joppa, then down to the ship, then down into the hold of the ship, then down into the stormy sea as the crew threw him overboard, and finally down into the belly of that great fish. Now Jonah thought he was as far from God as any man could be. Nevertheless, the Bible says, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and even as he was trying to hide from God, God had prepared his own Eden, his own perfect place. That is the perfect place for Jonah, the place Jonah needed to be. You see, it was there amongst the gastric juices that Jonah discovered the salvation of God and that God was committed to him even in spite of his rebellion. Bible says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me, out of the belly of shale, that is the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. That's in Jonah chapter 2. So Jonah probably bleached and putrid from head to toe, cried out to the Lord, and up and out he went, vomited onto the beach. You see, even though we may stray, our God loves us and is absolutely committed to us, and nothing in all of creation is stronger than his grace. How much better, though, to be obedient to the voice of the Lord. There's a wonderful peace of mind when you're trusting that where you are is where you're meant to be. Even if it doesn't seem tropical and ideal, your garden, so to speak, is the perfect place for you. Well, Genesis goes on, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow, that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, isn't it interesting that he placed both of these important trees right in the middle of the garden? As we'll soon see, Adam was told not to eat from one of them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As such, these continually represented to he and Eve the choice to do God's will or not. Now, likewise, in our own gardens, we continually have the same choice. We're ever confronted with it. The old saying is so true. Real love demands a choice. My daughter, bless her heart, when she was little, had a doll on which you could pull a little string And it would say different phrases like, oh, you're so cute, or let's have tea. You know, I could sit down with this little doll and pull the ring and hear it say, you're so cute. And somehow, it just wasn't believable. But to hear someone who doesn't have to say it, speak those three wonderful words, I love you, brings such incredible joy. So in this paradise of Eden were planted all these beautiful Fruitful trees, lovely in appearance with many, bearing some sort of good food. And oh, how poetic it is, in a sense, that the tree God planted in the midst of every believer's garden, that is, the heart, is also pleasant to the sight and good for food, that is, the cross of Calvary. Peter the Apostle, Referring to Jesus, wrote, "...who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed." That's First Peter 2. Now, you might say, "...the cross was a cruel instrument of death. It was not a pleasant sight." And, of course, that's right. But in realizing and believing what Christ's death on the cross means, you can see that that instrument of death became the most beautiful tree of all, and its fruit, the source of life. Genesis continues, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. Bible numerologists tell us that the number four in Scripture signifies the world. You have the four seasons, the four corners of the earth, and such. Here, the river that watered the paradise of Eden also flowed out and watered the world around it. In like manner, the water of God's Word that blesses the heart of the believer is intended to also overflow into the world around. Genesis goes on. The name of the first is Pishon, P-I-S-H-O-N. It is the one which runs through the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and the onyx stone are there. In the Bible, names are very important. Unlike today, where we name someone or something a name that just sounds nice, these people or places were named names that were descriptive of them in a present or prophetic sense. Names were powerful and meaningful. In fact, the ancients believed that if you knew someone's name, you held kind of a power or influence over them. And this is fascinating when you consider. We do not know how to pronounce, really, the name of God, spoken to Moses from the burning bush. That's in Exodus chapter 3. But in the names of these rivers, we get a picture of Jesus Christ. The first one is, as I said, Pishon, or Pishon, which means a great effusion, that is, a fountain, or great overflowing. Consider that Jesus said in John 7, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, could be his garden, will flow rivers, which literally means torrents or great effusions of living water. In addition, the name Havilah means one that suffers pain. And how appropriate! That is, when you consider that this is exactly what the love of Christ does, it overflows from the heart of the believer and winds its way throughout the places of pain and suffering all around. And in fact, I love it that it says that there is gold in those places. And it's not just gold, it's good gold. For it is in our deepest difficulties that we discover the riches of faith, hope, and trust in our God. Eternal riches, not just temporal. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm, and faith to trust Him. Look for our next podcast, and may you realize more of His grace today.